the largest book in the Bible, and they're all songs and poems to you. And Father, I, I pray, Lord, that you would put a new song in our hearts today, Lord Jesus. And for those that are here this morning that are weary and that are tired, and Lord, they just don't have a song in their heart, Father, would you by your spirit put a song in their heart this morning, a new song in their mouth, even praises to their God. Um, we love you, Lord. We're here to worship you. Please have your way today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and go to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, we're going to be doing uh, for the next couple weeks, at least the next five weeks. We may go longer than that. We may take it all the way up till Easter. Uh, we're just going to be uh, beginning in the beginning of the book of Psalms. Uh, 150 chapters, so don't worry, we're not going to preach all the way through it. Luke was 24, and that took us two years, so 150 will be here till Jesus comes back and takes us home to glory. Um, but we are going to spend a few weeks walking through them, and this morning is Psalm chapter, chapter 1. Um, let me just read it. Let me read it. It's just six verses, and I'll pray again, and we'll get into it. But Psalm chapter 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Pray with me one more time. Father, thanks for this morning. We do ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would be able to see wonderful things from your word, and that you would stir our hearts to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, before we get into these specific verses, because we're going to be spending a few weeks in the Psalms, I, I just want to give you a little bit of an overview of the way the book of Psalms is structured, and not just for some pointless intellectual knowledge, but it helps in the way that we understand them, and, and, and understanding the way that they're structured will help us to understand what the author is trying to communicate, um, and authors, I should say, because there's several diff different authors in the book of Psalms, what they're trying to communicate and how God intends it to be read. But many of you in your Bibles, like at the beginning of Psalm chapter 1, you might have some words like up at the beginning that just say book 1. Do any of you guys have that? It's kind of before the chapter. It says book 1. That is part of the inspired text. And the book of Psalms is divided into five different books, okay? And this is important for this reason. It's because that, if you remember... Um, the way that the, that the law was originally given, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament are referred to as the Pentateuch, Pentateuch meaning five, uh, the Pentateuch or the Torah. And the book of Psalms is mirrored after these five books of the Torah or of, of the Pentateuch. Now, there's, here's what's interesting about that is that in each one of these books, and, and I'll, I'll just say this real quickly, you don't need to write this down, you can check it out later, but book one uh, of the book of Psalms is Psalm 1 through 41, book two is Psalm 42 through 72, book three is 73 through 89, book four is 90 through 106, and book five is 107 through, through 150. And in order, 
each one of those books um, kind of mirrors the way that the Pentateuch was set up. So, for example, in the book of Genesis, you have God described as the sovereign creator God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was hovering over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and God spoke, let there be light, and there was light, and he begins to create. God is seen as the sovereign creator over man. In, books, in book one, in the Psalms, one through 41, it all, they all have to do primarily, the theme of all of them is God's sovereignty over everything. Book two in the Pentateuch is the book of Exodus, and it's God's protection of his people, of his national son Israel, and he's bringing him out of Egypt, and he's delivering him from slavery. Likewise, in book two of Psalms, Psalm 42 through 72, you have expressions of worship that are focusing primarily on God's protective nature. In Leviticus, you have the Levitical priesthood, all these crazy rules about slaying goats and sheep and all these different things. Sheeps is just sheep, right? Sheep is still plural. Anyway, sheep, not sheeps. Um, but the sheep, and, and in the same way, in book three, in, in the Psalms 73 through 89, you have all of those Psalms were written by Levitical priests, except for one, except for Psalm 86. But the rest were all written by Levites. In the book of Numbers, you have God uh, lovingly disciplining his children. Uh, as they did not go into the promised land after he brought them out of Egypt, uh, but they rebelled and did not believe him. And so you have God bearing with them and providing for them over 40 years in the wilderness as they wander around. Book four in the book of Psalms, Psalm 90 through 106, has to do with worship focusing on God's fatherly discipline and his chastisement of his people. And then finally, you have the book of Deuteronomy, which is Moses, Deuteronomy is basically one long sermon that Moses gives right before he goes up on the mountain and dies as after the 40 years of wandering, The people are finally getting ready to go in and take possession of the promised land. And Moses in Deuteronomy kind of calls them, he just reminds them of all of God's goodness and what it means to go in and is calling him to look to the future. And in the same way, book 5, Psalm 107 through 150, are expressions of worship looking forward ahead to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises when we will be with him forever. And, And I say all that because there's a term that theologians use called progressive revelation. Everybody say progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. And, and the idea of progressive revelation states that stage by stage in redemptive history, God is giving greater and greater clarity um, as to his nature and as to his activity. Okay? Now hang with me here. Okay? Don't let your eyes glaze over when I start throwing around theological terms like that because it matters. But progressive revelation is the idea that as the scriptures were being written and God is working in his, in his people throughout the stages of redemptive history, that God is revealing, giving more and more clarity as to his nature and as to his activity. And the reason understanding all that, that the book of Psalms put together in these five books is mirroring the Pentateuch is that I believe that in progressive revelation, what God is having us look at in the Psalms is in some ways is the Pentateuch all over again But now, instead of just law, instead of just information, and it was good, we now have all of this truth, the same law kind of restated, but in worship towards God. And the progressive revelation being that God is revealing throughout time, and he he revealed this in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as well too, but they missed it, and again, it becomes clearer and clearer, is that in the Psalms, God is revealing that he wants a relationship with us. Does that make sense? All that to say that God is revealing this truth 
in a relational way. And in the Psalms, you have David, along with many other authors, crying out the truth that they would have had in the Torah or the Pentateuch to God in a way that shows that he wants us to interact with him. He wants us to have a relationship with him. He wants us, he wants us to mingle with him. And so that's what I want to look at. And, and Psalm 1 really is kind of like the entryway or the doorway through which we kind of enter into all the other psalms, and they're going to tell us how to live a life of worship. And this is important, and it's important for us, especially here at Mercy Hill, I think it's important for every believer, but our mission statement here at Mercy Hill just simply says this, is that we want to help every person continually worship Jesus by imparting grace with our words, works, gifts, and resources. The reason that we have that as our mission is because I believe that that is the purpose that the Scripture reveals for which you and I were created. That the purpose of our lives, whether you realize it this morning coming in here or not, is this, is that you were made to worship God. You were made to worship. In fact, you might not realize this, but you can't not worship. It's just that most of us spend most of our days worshiping other things. We spend most of our days trying to satisfy ourselves in things that will not satisfy. Worship is simply enjoying something. When we sit down and we eat a good steak or we eat a good pizza or we eat some good wings or whatever it is, that you, like, you're in that moment and it's not wrong to enjoy that stuff, but when it becomes idolatry, it then becomes gluttony because we try to find ultimate satisfaction in those things. See, and, and, and in worshiping God, we're to take those wings or that pizza or that steak or whatever it is that we're eating and we're to, man, we're to enjoy it, we're to take it in, we're to savor every bite, but then we're, gonna, we're, we're to say, God, isn't God amazing? that he created taste buds, and that he created different flavors, and that he didn't just make everything taste like broccoli. Praise God that not everything tastes like broccoli. Can I get an amen from somebody? That's right. That everything gets rolled up into a higher level of worship when we were made to worship, to worship God. And the Psalms are going to teach us, are going to teach us how to do that. So again, let's look at Psalm 1 and just jump into it here. First thing he says, blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So Psalm 1, here's the way Psalm 1 is set up. It's kind of like there's just, there's three little stanzas, verses one and two, verses three and four to go, to go together, and then verses five and six. And in each one, there's a negative and there's a positive. And so he's talking about, as we see here in verse one, this blessed man. And blessed doesn't just mean that in the, in the way that we think of blessing. Blessing here, it doesn't have, just have to do with material or circumstantial blessings or your, your situation or your circumstance that you find yourself in. It has to do with the blessing of a dynamic relationship with God on a daily basis. It's the idea that God is always near. Whenever you see this word blessed in the scriptures, and interestingly enough, the first major sermon that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 uh, through 7, he starts off with the Beatitudes and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the first thing Jesus talks about when he comes on the scene and begins to preach is this idea of being blessed. And so we want to know what it means to be blessed. And what it means to be blessed is that God is near, that he's watching over your life and that he sees. Not just that you have stuff, 
And see, so many false teachers in America today especially will say, of course, see, God wants you to be blessed. And so he wants you to have that new car, that new house. He wants you to have the more money in your bank account, the nice retirement fund, all this and that. But then you see Jesus coming on the scene and he says, well, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lie his head. He says, if anybody wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Um, God's idea of blessing is different than our idea of blessing, but God's idea of blessing is better than our idea of blessing as well. God's idea of being blessed is that he is near. Do you know this morning that the Lord is near you? Do you want the Lord near you? Do you want nothing more this morning than to be able to say with confidence that God, almighty God, he is near me. He is on my side. Psalm 1 is going to tell us how to do that. First of all, it is not by walking in the way, or walking in the counsel of the wicked, nor standing in the way of sinners, nor sitting in the seat of of scoffers. Did you notice the progression there? Again, the Psalms are filled with poetic parallelism, and what it, it's not that it rhymes like when we think of a poem, but it's that it's the same idea restated over and over, and it progresses. And the progression here is that there's a guy, this blessed guy, but the blessed guy doesn't do this. This is what an unblessed guy would do, but he's walking in the way of the wicked, and then he's standing, and then pretty soon he just sits down. And this is the progressive nature of sin, guys. And if you want to live a life that is blessed, that you can say with confidence always that God is near, you've got to say no to sin. Now listen, let me be clear. Jesus came to take away our sin because there's none righteous, no, not one. And we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the authority of the scriptures, amen? That's it. But functionally, when Jesus came, he came and he paid the price to forgive us of our sins, but he also purchased for us the ability to now obey him. That sin has lost its power. It has lost its hold. And when you and I, as Christians, still struggle with sin, and we all do, do you know why we struggle with sin? Here's why. You ready? Because we love it. Because we love our sin. That's why we still sin. That's why we struggle with it. And I know that after we do it, then we hate it. That's how it goes, right? We look at something on the internet again that we shouldn't look at. We say a harsh word to somebody that we love that we shouldn't have said, and we get into an argument. We lie, we steal, we cheat, and we hate it afterwards. But in that moment, the reason that we commit sin is because in that moment, that has become a functional savior to us. The image on that computer screen or that harsh word that we need to say to defend ourselves and to justify ourselves, and tear other people down. In that moment, that's what we need. And so we do it because we love it. And sin always has, it's like quicksand. It just, it sucks you in. And you begin to walk in the way of the wicked, then you begin to stand, and pretty soon you find yourself, you find yourself sitting down. James has a similar progression, although he uses different words in the epistle of James chapter 1. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, he uses birth language here, 
is that there's some sort of an act, an intimate act that takes place with this temptation out in the world. And when, it has, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. James has a pipeline. He has a progression of sin in the way that it happens. And so the question is this morning, how do we overcome that? Well, the writer of Psalm 1, he tells us. He tells us how to live lives of worship that overcome sin. And I love this. Verse 2. The blessed man doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, but his what? Verse 2. What does it say? But his, you see it? Say it out loud if you see it. Delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And we can just put it here, his delight is in the word of God. That he's not just reading the word of God, he's not just trying to fill his mind with information, but he is seeking to satisfy his soul in the scriptures. He's seeking to satisfy his heart in the things that satisfy God. God tells us what is truly lovely. God does not do things and then we say that they're just. God does something and then we know that it's just. God doesn't do something and we say, that's good, that's okay. No, God does something and then we know that it's good. We look to God for absolutely our definition of absolutely everything. In the same way, what he says is worth delighting in, what he says is lovely, then it's truly lovely. And guys, his word is lovely. And the only way that you can practically, day to day, even though you might be a Christian and your sins are forgiven, listen, I, I'm no, I'm, I, 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 maybe I am a little bit naive in some areas, but I'm not that naive. And I've been the pastor here at Mercy Hill for almost five years, coming next month. And I have no doubt at all that this morning, right now, in this room, there are many of you that are Christians. You are truly born again, and you are absolutely, positively bound by sin. Day to day, you can't, or week to week, you just fall into the same sin habit over and over and over again. And I want to say a couple things. Number one, Jesus still loves you. Because even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And that's where you got to start. Is that there is always mercy at the cross. But then number two is this. If you want to functionally, practically live in victory over that sin, put that sin underneath your feet and be free from it, then you have got to delight yourself in the law of God. The only way to overcome the desire of sin is with a greater desire. A desire for God's word and for his truth and for his presence. Guys, Jesus wants to be the lover of your soul. That's what he calls us to. He calls us into relationship. And here is how we, this is very practical, okay? This is not pie in the sky. I'm really trying to give you something very practical to overcome sin in your daily life, okay? And for myself as well. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he, what? See it? He meditates. How do you delight yourself in the word of God? You, you read this book, and you don't just read it quick, fast, and in a hurry just so you can check your box for reading your, you know, four chapters that you need to read a day just so you can get through the Bible in a year. And I'm not against doing that. But meditating, it, it literally, um, in the Hebrew, it's, it's this, it means to like growl or to murmur or to mutter. 
And so when you're meditating upon the law, like let's say we're meditating upon Psalm 1, you're just, blessed, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands in the way of sinners. His delight, his delight, his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates, he meditates. And so you're just kind of murmuring this to yourself over and over. You're, memor- you're internalizing the word of God. One person has said that meditating is simply thinking with the heart. That you're not just trying to get information or just read through it quick so you can check a box, but that you're trying to get into the Word until the Word gets down into you and you delight in it. And your heart is awakened to the glory of God through His revealed Word. Guys, that is what this is for. That we could have a living, vibrant, dynamic relationship with God. Live a blessed life where we know God is near because his word is in us. Okay? George Mueller. You guys heard of George Mueller? England, uh, 1800s, orphans. uh, Had over 10,000 orphans go through his orphanage. Did it all by faith. Totally wouldn't ask anybody for anything but would just pray stuff in. And uh, they say, you know, the Bible says that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. And it's no surprise then that George Mueller was such a great man of faith because he was such a great man of the word. And he gives some very uh, beautiful practical advice on the word here. I just want you to listen closely to what George Mueller has to say. And hear how this, again, the word, it goes along with delighting in the word. He says, according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even be, let, have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last five and 30 years. And George Mueller ended up living to be 95 years old. For the first four years after my conversion, I knew not its, its vast importance. But now, after much experience, I especially commend this point to notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God. Delighting yourself in the Lord. Having experiential acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. And then he goes on later and he says how he did this. He said, I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation upon it. What is the food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the word of God. And not the simple reading of the word of God so that it passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe. But considering what we read pondering over it and applying it to our hearts. Again, guys, just on a very practical level, and I pray that this helps somebody this morning, and please, I don't want to say like it helps, like I need this to help me as well. I'm in the fight against sin every day just like you are. But sometimes I sit with guys that are struggling with sin habits in their life. And, and when a sin habit becomes a habit for a long time, the Bible calls that a stronghold. And strongholds are called strongholds for a reason. Even the Bible calls them that. It's because they're strong and they've got a hold <laughs> and they're hard to get out of, okay? So I, I, I'm, I acknowledge that it's difficult. But here's the thing. 
Jesus said that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And what he wants to do, the way that he wants to functionally give you life and salvation, day by day, overcoming sin, is by getting this book down into you. And I ask guys that are struggling with sin, well, man, how much are you reading your Bible? How much are you memorizing? How much are you getting in it? Well, I read it for five minutes last week one time. And listen, I, I, I say all this not to in any way be condemning, but sometimes we act like we're confused about why we're stuck in sin. Are you following me? And guys, it's not a mystery. Jesus came, and he paid the penalty on the cross, and he sent his spirit, and he's given us his word. And if we will just get in this word until this word gets deep down into us, you can have victory. But there's no substitute for it. Come and, I believe in what we're doing right now. But a sermon on Sunday morning, no matter, and it doesn't have to be me, it can be somebody that's a much better speaker and preacher than me. It won't be enough. You have got to get in the word for yourself until your soul cries out that it is happy in God and that sin looks to your heart as for what it really is, which is death. Okay? You guys know the example I always use. You guys know, and if you grew up in Holmes County, you know what this is. Probably only in Holmes County, East Holmes County especially, do we know what this is. But do you know what I'm saying when I say road apple? Yes? Sin is a chocolate-covered road apple. And it looks good. You might even be able to take a little lick and get away with it. But you bite into that puppy, and you're going to be sorry. And when we delight ourselves in the law of God, we see sin for what it really is. It's nasty. And it's nothing but death. Because then we truly taste what is truly life indeed. Okay, going on here. Verse 3, what's this man like? What's this man like that doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord? Here's what he's like, verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like shaft that the wind drives away. So again, you've got a negative and a positive. Yet he doesn't walk in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He's like a tree planted by streams of living water, and the wicked not so. They're like shaft that the wind, that the wind blows away. Okay? Why do we want to be like a tree? Because it yields fruit. Because it's rooted, it's grounded, it's by streams of living water, it has a source of life. That's the importance of that image, that it's by streams of living water, that there's a source. And again, the source is the word of God, and we functionally put our roots down into it and drink from that source when we meditate upon it, until our souls delight in it. And guys, God has called us. He has called us to be fruitful. Do you believe that? Do you believe that about your life? That in 2019, God has called you to be fruitful. He has called you to bear fruit that honors and glorifies him. Jesus says the same thing in, in John chapter 15. He says, I'm the true vine, my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you 
Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he goes on, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What is the proof that we are disciples of Christ? That we bear fruit. That we bear fruit in our lives. That we delight ourselves in the Lord. That we be like this tree that's dug down deep has this source of life, and bears fruit. Do you guys remember what, and again, remember that these first several psalms are, I believe, mirroring the book of Genesis. Do you remember what God called Adam and Eve to in the beginning? What was Adam's job? He was a gardener, right? What, did, what was his job? A gar- or what does a gardener do? It cultivates the ground, and it produces fruit. God's one command to Adam and Eve was, you know, keep this, watch over it. This is all yours. I'm giving all things into your hand. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Guys, God's will for your life individually and for us as a church is that we bear fruit. We produce good things in our life. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, it lists some of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it says against such things. So other things like that. Um, That's the fruit that God wants to be in our lives. He wants to be in our garden. Why? So that other people can come and they can eat and they can partake of it. One of the ways that we fight evil, that we stand against the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinner, the seed of the scoffer, is by bearing fruit, guys. That we do good things in Jesus' name, in the power of his spirit, where there's death and where there's just desert land and hard ground, we come in and we bear fruit because we're rooted and grounded in the word of God. In verse four, he says, the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff. Chaff is like, it's like dead leaves. A couple months ago, you know, all the leaves, they're beautiful when they're coming down, but then they come down and they're brown. They have no life in them. They're no longer attached to anything that provides nutrients to them. And they're nothingness, and the wind just blows them away. C.S. Lewis wrote this book um, many years ago called The Great Divorce. And in this book, he imagines what it would be like to go into heaven or into the spiritual realm um, when you really weren't trying to live for the kingdom here on earth. In other words, he, he imagines what it would be like to go into heaven for somebody that really um, wasn't a real natural inhabitant of it. And I just want to read this little quote from his book, The Great Divorce. He talks about, and, th- and this is him. He says, there was a leaf, young and tender, a beech leaf, lying in the grass. And I tried to pick up the leaf. My heart almost cracked with the effort. And I believe I did just raise it a little bit but I had to let it go all at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. As I stood recovering my breath with great gasps and looking down at the daisy, I noticed that I could see the grass, the grass not only between my toes, but also through them. Then he just says this. He says, I also was a phantom. Uh, in their book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, these two guys, I love this book, Kyle Strobel and Jamin Goggin, they're writing this book and they're commenting on that paragraph from Lewis there. And they say this, they sum it up well. They say, when we give ourselves to sin, 
We are not simply doing bad things. We are becoming lighter beings. The fallout from the power of sin is a decrease in weightiness and an ever-pervasive superficiality. Do you understand what he's saying? So guys, when we... When we do, when we're not like the tree that's planted by streams of living water, when we do end up sitting in the way of scoffers, we, we have no impact on our world. We have no weight to us. This is the great problem in America today, in my opinion, is that why are we having no impact on the culture? Because we have absolutely no weight to our lives if you've ever studied communication, there's three primary things that, that are kind of streams that play into communication. You have what they call uh, um, pathos, logos, and ethos, okay? Pathos is the passion or the emotion with which you present something. Logos has to do with logic, okay? It's the words that we, that we speak, that we have to make sense of what we're saying. But ethos has to do with our ethic, in other words, and follow me here, this is why this matters, is because that when somebody speaks, like if I'm up here speaking to you today from the Word of God, and I'm exhorting you to get into the Word of God, to dig your roots down deep into the Word of God, to meditate upon the Word until it becomes your delight, but I'm not doing this in my own life, then my words are going to land upon you with nothingness. I'm going to be light. I'm going to be superficial. And the reason we have no impact on the culture, by and large, is because we're not living this word. It's not down in us to where it's our delight and to where we have weight. And so when we speak, we speak with passion and with conviction and with lives that are trying to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Does that make sense? There's no fruit. And guys, God wants us to be fruitful. And he wants us to fight the darkness. He wants us to fight evil with fruit. Again, that passage I read from John, that is literally probably an hour or two at the most before Jesus is arrested. And he's talking to his disciples about grapes. Why is that? Because even though darkness was about to come and take him and crucify him on the cross, again, all part of the Father's plan, he wanted his disciples to remember that even though they were in that, that very important hour, that what God desires more than anything else is that we bear fruit with our lives and so prove to be his disciples. Guys, God has called you to bear fruit. He's called us as a church to bear fruit. And the psalmist ends up here. He says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So again, verse five, follow the logic here. Therefore, why does he say therefore? He just got done talking about fruit, and he got done talking about the wicked and how they're like chaff, okay? What he's saying is that if you have no fruit in your life, you will be judged, Okay, um, whenever somebody truly turns to the Lord and is truly born again, the Spirit of God comes into them and they cannot not bear fruit. Okay? But what we've done, again, primarily just in America, is this thing, and listen, guys, you've heard me, especially for those of you that go here, 
Salvation is only by grace through faith in Christ alone. But when you are truly born again, the Spirit of God comes in you and it produces a change. It produces good fruit in your life, okay? You're not saved by the fruit, but you're saved for the fruit. And the fruit is the proof of your life. And the logic here, he's arguing the same thing in the Psalms. He says, therefore the wicked, w- wicked will not stand in the judgment. Why? Why therefore will they not stand? Because they're like chaff. Because they have no fruit. Jesus, in the last days as he's coming into Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree. And he goes to get some fruit from it, but there's no fruit on it. And he says, cursed be that fig tree. And the thing withers up and dries right there. Luke tells a parable. In Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, he says, he told him this parable. A man had a fig tree, and he planted his vineyard, and he came out seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it go alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Jesus is going to judge us by the fruit of our lives. Again, that is not works-based salvation. That is the reality of the kingdom of God, that when you believe in Christ alone, it produces fruit in your life. Do you follow me? Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. Uh, And it is not for any of us to necessarily be judging the fruit on everybody's tree. Our number one priority should be to make sure that there's fruit on our tree by having our roots sunk down deep by this stream of living water, meditating on the law of God until our soul sings with delight in it that it would produce fruit in our life. And verse six, here's the reward of this person that's like a tree that meditates on the word of God. It says the Lord knows. He knows the way of the righteous. What does that mean? Like he doesn't know about the wicked? No, the word knows means he's intimately acquainted with. It's the idea of a man knows his wife. A wife knows her husband intimately. The reward is that the Lord knows us Again, the blessed life is that God is near, that he's intimately acquainted with your life. Worship team, you come up. We'll begin to close. Um, I just have a couple questions for you as, as we begin to close. Uh, number one is, I just want you to think about your life very practically, day to day. Who will be the people that you will be around tomorrow at work or in your neighborhood or at your school or who you'll bump into on social media? Think about what's going to happen in your life tomorrow. And I want to ask the question, what does it look like for you to bear fruit in those contexts? And as you think about what it looks like to bear good fruit for the kingdom, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all these things. I want you to begin to pray that God would produce these things in your life because it's not things that we can produce. It's stuff that he produces in us by his word and by his spirit. What does it look like for you at your workplace where everybody's always harsh and bitter maybe 
and just tired of working for the man, and man, if the boss would just treat us better, and everybody's just kind of negative, but they're just kind of going through the grind. Maybe that's not your workplace, but maybe it is. But what does it look like to speak kind words? What does it look like to live a life of service rather than selfishness? What does it look like, young people, to be a friend to somebody that doesn't have anybody to sit with them and eat lunch with them in the cafeteria um, at lunchtime? What does it mean to give hope and encouragement rather than to be negative? Secondly, I want to ask you this, and this is very practical and very real. In your fight against sin and in your call to live a life of fruitfulness, what is your plan for getting into God's Word? What is your plan for getting into God's Word? Here's the deal. If you don't have a plan then you don't actually plan to do it. I promise you that. You might get into it in a superficial way. But what is your plan for getting into God's word? Again, this is all very brass tacks, but as Conrad mentioned at the beginning of the service, right now sign up is open for the E2 course, which is going to be starting in March and running for a year. You have until March 17th to sign up for that. If you're taking that course, we're going to give you a Bible reading plan. And people are going to be reading the same chapter of Scripture every day and journaling through it and memorizing the same, the same passage. But if you don't want to take it, that's totally fine. But I would exhort you this morning on the basis of what we talked about. Get a plan. I don't care if you read through the Bible in a year. I don't care. Uh, you know, it, just Google Bible reading plans. There's a thousand different ones. It doesn't matter which one. What matters is that you get down into the Word of God, until the Word of God gets down into you, and it begins to produce fruit in your life. Overcoming sin overcoming sin and bearing good fruit and creating beauty uh, in, in, the, in the world around you. Um, and then lastly, I'd like if you guys would just bow your heads with me for just a second. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to ask you this morning, if there's anybody here that as we've been studying this passage of Scripture together, Psalm 1, Seeking to live a life of worship. Do you feel like you're the shaft this morning? Do you feel like if God were to come and were to inspect your life for fruit today, do you feel like you'd have nothing? And if that's you, I want to tell you that even right now this morning, I promise you, there is still good news. There is hope. If you feel like the shaft and you feel like you have no weight to your life, you have no root system, you have no fruit, and that you're just being blown to and fro, I want to tell you that it all starts by simply believing that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was enough. And then by repenting of the fact that you probably believe that there's no way he could ever use me. There's no way he could ever produce fruit in my life. I'm too bad, I'm too this, I'm too that, I'm too whatever. Guys, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And, who, indeed. and whom he saves, he saves to the uttermost. And if you've believed in Jesus or if you haven't believed in Jesus, if you're fruitless this morning, I just plead with you, please, just come again to the cross and look at what Jesus Christ did for you that he stood in your place and yes, he paid the penalty for all of your sins, purchasing your forgiveness so you can come before the Father. But he also purchased for you good works, Ephesians 2.10 says. 
good works that he has prepared in advance for you to walk in. But your part is to dig down deep into his word, to meditate upon it day and night until it satisfies your soul and you love nothing more than him. And man, guys, that's a daily fight. That's a daily fight. And if that's you this morning and you feel like the shaft and you're just being kind of blown around, I just want to pray for you and we'll close. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for just your goodness and your mercy that you show us every day, Lord. Because, Father, every day we, you know, we even come here on Sundays and during the week, and, man, we've just spent so much time just loving other things. But, Father, um, I ask this morning, Lord, for those that feel like they're the shaft and they're, that they're just being blown about and that they're struggling to even believe that you could ever produce any good thing in them. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would show them your mercy and your grace that you would help them to believe in you. And Father, I pray that you'd give them hope. Please fill their hearts with hope this morning, Lord, in this moment. And Father, I pray that each one of us, Lord, would go forward with a resolve to get more into your word than what we've been in it in the past. We wanna be those trees that produce fruit for your honor and for your glory. Please help us, Lord. Amen. You guys stand with me. We're going to sing one song. No communion today. We're going to sing one song, and then we've got